The story is told of three people who died and uh, were met at the gates of heaven by St. Peter. The first was a lawyer from California. And he said, I'd like to enter, please. And uh, Peter replied, well, first you must pass one small test. He said, okay, what is that? He goes, you have to spell God. He goes, God? He goes, yes. He goes, that's a snap, God, G-O-D. Peter said, excellent, you may enter. The second was an oil man from Texas. He said, I'd like to enter. He said, very well, all in good time, but you must first pass one small test. He said, well, what is that? He goes, you must spell God. He goes, well, that's a cinch. God, G-O-D. He said, excellent, you may enter. He says, the third person was an attractive stockbroker, a female stockbroker from New York, who approached Peter at that point and said, I'd like to enter, please. And Peter said, well, very well, all in good time, but first you must pass one small test. And she interrupted him and said, oh, come on, saint. She says, you know, I've had it tough all my life. I've had to fight for every promotion I've ever had just because I'm a woman. I've had to settle for lower pay for the same positions as my male co-workers. I've continually been harassed by a boss who was a male chauvinist pig. So now what? You're going to give me a hard time too? When is this ever going to end? He goes, all it is is one small test. She said, well, what is it? He said, spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> I love that story. You know, it's funny, but it also represents a widely held misconception when it comes to what, what one must do to enter heaven. You know, an all too common belief is that somehow our efforts are what will ultimately determine whether we gain access into God's presence. And to this belief, the Bible clearly rejects all such thinking. The Bible says it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us would ever be able to boast. All throughout the Bible, man is told that in order to go to heaven, to experience the fullness of God's presence, one must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. You know, the word repentance means to have a change of heart or a change of mind, a change of attitude. In the world that we live in today, the the most prevalent change of heart or mind or attitude has to be that of our own condition. We live in a world where people think they're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, God graves on a curve, and as long as you know we're on this side of the bell curve, 70% or better, or whatever, that somehow or another, that's what God will use to determine whether we will gain access into heaven. And the bottom line of all of that is, is, no, that's wrong thinking as we learned in the reality of our mortality. The reason that you and I will die one day physically is because of Adam and the sin of his rebellion against God. When Adam sinned, uh, when Adam rebelled against God, sin entered into the world and with sin came death. And so the reason that you will die and I will die is, the, is, is a, an indictment uh, that God holds against all of humanity, and that is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. So the very first thing that we have to deal with is the reality or the fact of the matter is that none of us are righteous before God. None of us are right before God. We're all born into this world on the quick track or fast track to Hades or hell, or as we'll find out in the study, the lake of fire. And unless there's some divine intervention, that's where we would end up. And so the Bible says that we are to repent, to have a change of heart and a change of mind. 
as far as our own condition and accept and recognize and acknowledge what God says about us is true. I have sinned. God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. Not you're a sinner. You got your own thing to deal with with God. But when it comes down right down to it, it becomes very personal. You know, I have sinned. God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. The Bible says that we're also to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that we'll be saved. To believe upon what? To believe upon who he is, his identity as God's son sent into this world to die upon the cross. He lived a holy and righteous life, a perfect life. And he died upon the cross that those who would believe and trust in his death upon the cross, the shedding of his blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness or remission of sin. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. To believe that he died for your sins. To believe that he rose again from the dead. To believe that he's alive today and extends forgiveness to all who go to him and cry out for mercy. Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. See, the basis of our entrance into heaven is whether or not we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. And it becomes very personal. It becomes uh, highly subjective. And the question is, you know, have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you been born again by God's terms? All who come to Christ on his terms and are born again by the will of God and by the power of God, you know, we are adopted into God's family. The Bible says that we find forgiveness in Christ And therefore, one day, when we die physically, the Bible says that that day, when that day comes, we'll be absent from our physical bodies, but we'll be present with the Lord. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that that day comes for each one of us, unless Jesus comes first. But the reality of it is, is that the day will come for each one of us where when we die physically, the question will be, will we be absent from our body? And in the fullness of the presence of God, as was even sung here this morning, that we will behold him and that we shall see him face to face. And that was mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling theology when you stop and think about it and you read through the Old Testament and also the New Testament where the Bible says that no one has ever seen God and lived. And the reality of it is, is that in these physical bodies, we are not prepared to see the essence of God. We're not prepared to see the glory of God. We're not prepared to see the holiness of God. And that's why, you know, when Moses wanted to see God, God said, you know what, I'll just give you a little glimpse of my back because you can't see me and live. And so in these frail, sinful bodies that we have, we are not prepared to see the holiness of God. But one day we shall behold him and we will see him as he is. And the Bible says that that day will come when God's people will be absent from the body and will be present with the Lord. Today on our ongoing study of, of uh, life, life, living life in light of eternity, we focus our attention on what life is like today in the intermediate heaven. In other words, if as a child of God, one were to die today, what can we expect to experience in the intermediate heaven? 
And for some biblical insight, turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to take a look at verses 9 through 11 as well as some other passages to help us to get some uh, information or insight as to what we will experience if today was the day that was appointed for you or for me as God's people uh, to go home to be in his presence. Revelation chapter 6, starting with verse 9, we read these words. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. You know, before uh, examining this passage, a brief explanation is probably in order regarding the term intermediate heaven, as you notice that that's the sermon title that I chose for this particular message. You know, as we go through this series, we're going to learn that there is a day that's coming when God will create a new heaven and a new earth, And there'll be a new Jerusalem, which will be the focal point of this particular creation of God. And uh, that will be the eternal uh, or permanent arrangement uh, so that it's not to be confused with that which one would experience if death uh, greeted us today. Uh, Therefore, I'm going to use the term intermediate or temporary or present heaven uh, to describe the heaven that we would experience uh, if today was the day that God called us home. And, uh, you know, and, it's, and it's also what is being experienced by those in God's presence, even as we study and look at this particular passage in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And from this passage, there are going to be four things that we're going to examine and that will aid us in our understanding of the intermediate heaven. The first is this, is that we learn in verse 9 of the identity of these souls that we find here in verse 9. We're told that they were found under the altar. He says, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Uh, This refers to the altar of sacrifice. And if you go back to Leviticus with me uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see that what had happened is when the sacrifices were made, the blood was poured underneath the altar. And uh, in Leviticus chapter 4, we'll see the the same verbiage or uh, terminology that's used to help us to recognize and understand exactly what the word picture is that's before us in this chapter in Revelation. But in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is the doorway of the tent of the meeting. In verse 18, it says, And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting. All the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of the meetings. And so there's a word picture that we have here that's picked up again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 25, Leviticus 4, same thing. It says, And then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. 
Paul later, as he came to the end of his life, would use the same word picture to help those around him understand in the Philippians chapter 2, for example. Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 2. He uses the same word picture to help him understand. He says that um, Philippians 2 verse 17 says, but even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. When he wrote to Timothy in the second letter in, verse, in, ch- in chapter 4, also in verse 6, he said the same thing. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, if you recall from our last message, the word departure means to go from this life to the next life. He's saying, I'm already being poured out or sacrificed, and the time of my departure is now at hand. So the day, that day that I told you about, when I'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord, that day is imminent uh, because he had a good sense and an understanding when he would be sacrificed for God's purposes. Now, going back to Revelation chapter 6, we see that these souls of those who had been slain. So here in Revelation, the souls of the martyrs under the altar indicate that their lives were slain or given sacrificially to the glory of God. And so that's the, 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 um, the word picture that we have. These are the people that we're dealing with. Uh, some Bible scholars uh, say that since the, the text says that they had been slain, it's believed by many that these martyrs are from all throughout human history, uh, not just those who died uh, at the beginning of the uh, second half of the tribulation period and throughout the tribulation, but that Jesus himself referred to these who had been martyred when he said in Luke eleven fifty and 51, he said that the blood of all the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. And he says, verily I say unto you, it will be required of this generation. And if you remember, Jesus had rebuked them because they had killed all the prophets that God had sent to them to warn them to repent. And the message has been saying throughout all of human history, repent, turn from sin, turn to God, Throw yourself upon the mercy of God for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be forgiven. Well, they didn't want to hear that message of repentance. They didn't want to turn from sin. They liked their sin, and so they rejected the messengers, and they would be held accountable for killing those that God had sent to them. And so in this passage, we go back to uh, Revelation 6, 9. Why were these believers put to death? And we're told very clearly exactly why it was that they were killed. They were killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. It was for the word of God and the testimony that they held. In other words, it was because of their conviction that what God said was true. And when people said, you know what, that's not true, they said, it is true. And they said, no, it's not. And God's people said, yes, it is. And when the opposition said, listen, we don't want to hear that anymore. Shut up. They said, we don't have a choice. Even as was sung this morning. Who will share his name? Who will declare his name before the world? 
And so there's a point where we are told to be his witnesses. That's not an option. We're to go into all the world. And we are to declare his name before men. How can you go to heaven? There's only one way you can get there. You've got to repent and you've got to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Whose name are we to declare before the world? We're to declare the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Lord. Jesus Savior before the world around us in a dark and lost world. Because without knowing Jesus, you will never get into the presence of God. It's all about who you know. Just like everything. It's all about who you know. And it's about whether he knows you, more importantly. Not whether you've heard of him, but whether he knows you. Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? See, these folks said, we will not shut up. We will not be silent. And it's been said that our convictions aren't really ours until we've paid for them. And they have, with the ultimate price, paid for their conviction. They put their life on the line. They said, you know what? We would, we would rather die than to reject our Savior. We would rather die. And it's because they understood that death was not the end of the road. They understood that death was a bend in the road that would lead them into the presence of their God. And so they knew they couldn't lose. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And if you're going to kill us for professing his name, then that's okay with us because it just puts us on the fast track into his presence. My question as I read through this and the conviction of my heart was, you know, what do we really believe? And how much are we really willing to pay for what we say we believe? I know folks that would deny Christ before they would lose their job. I know folks who would deny Christ before they would lose a relationship of some sort. And these folks said that, you know what? I would rather lose my life than deny my Savior. And so it helps us to understand you know, perhaps these are the ones who are honored in Hebrews eleven thirty-five through 39, and we'll look at that in a minute. But, in, you know, an interesting note at this point in our study is that the Greek word martis, which gives us our English word martyr, simply means a witness, that we are to be a witness. And sometimes to be a witness means it may cost us our life. It may cost us a job. It may cost us a relationship. It may cost us you know, earthly possessions of some sort. But in order to witness to those around us about who Jesus is, sometimes they don't listen to a thing we have to say until they see the price that we're willing to pay. And then they kind of go, oh, wait a minute. You must be serious about this. See, these saints were slain by the enemy because they bore witness to the truth of God's word and the message of Jesus Christ. And they were murdered for telling the truth, which helps us to understand in verse 10 the injustice that they express. I mean, notice what they say. 
You know, they cried out with a loud voice, How long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Saying, you know, how long before you make things right? And in order to really appreciate and understand, turn back to Hebrews chapter 11 and, and, and just for a moment, try to gain an understanding of the price that some of God's people have paid throughout human history to witness to others about Jesus. And it's embarrassing to me and to our culture when we think about what they went through, what they endured, the price that they paid, and some of us are so hesitant to tell people about Jesus. And there's no price even to be paid. Someone might not like what you have to say. They may not want to hang around and be your friend. But if you really love and care about the people that we say that we do, do you really believe? Do you really believe in judgment? Do you really believe in the wrath of God? Do you really believe in Hades and hell and the lake of fire? Do you really believe in the fact that those who die outside of Christ will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place where they'll be tormented and tortured day and night forever and ever. If you really believe that, I'm thinking that we would be willing to maybe lose a friend along the line to tell them the truth about what they can expect outside of Christ. But in Hebrews 11, look at verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Basically, they're saying, you know what? Hey, you know, deny what you're saying, and we'll let you go. You know, we'll stop beating you. We'll start tormenting you and torturing you. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom this world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Saying, you know what? They stepped out and lived by faith, even though they hadn't lived to see the promises of God. But they knew his promises would come to fruition one day. And that's faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's trusting God in the moment in time when we haven't lived to see all of his promises. It's living today in light of, you know, the, 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 the tribulations and the trials and, and the persecution and distress and all the things that we go through and doing so with integrity and, and with courage and with conviction of heart, knowing that every promise that God has made is true 
It's for me to live in light of the fact that I've got a terminal illness, knowing that I can still trust and count on the promises of God, even though I haven't lived to see those promises fulfilled, but I believe what God's word has to say, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that we can live in light of eternity today with that kind of trust and with that kind of hope so that those around us know what it means to have a living and vital and and vibrant relationship with the God who has created us through faith in Christ. You know, in light of what they suffered and the long delay in the fulfillment of God's promises, if these are indeed, you know, God's people who have been martyred throughout human history, you know, it's, it's no wonder that they ask the question, you know, how long, you know, until you make things right? And they cry out in a loud voice. And notice this, they said that, you know, he is holy and that he is true. And as, you know, we get into the presence of God, we will see God for who he is and that he is holy, and that he is true, and that what he has had to say is, is going to come to fruition. And, and so, God, you know, how long until you make these things right? How long until you judge those who have treated us harshly? How long until you have avenged all of those things that, that were wrong? And it's a, good, it's a good time to bring up the fact that, you know, the series is helping us to understand how to live life in light of eternity. And in this particular passage, it helps me to recognize and understand something that's very critical and important for all of us, and that is this. How many of us are living life today with a bitterness towards someone or people who have harmed us? And we get very impatient with God when it comes to when are you going to make these things right? And what we learn from this passage is this. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. I'll make everything right. And here are people who were murdered. And they were murdered for one reason. Because they stood for truth. What God says is true. And they were killed for that. And some of us are hurt. And we've been wronged by others. Our feelings have been hurt. We've been let down. uh, We've been disappointed. People have said they'd do something and they, they didn't do it. Or they've done things to harm us when we trusted them. And so we live life uh, sometimes in, in, with this anticipation of vengeance. And we need to recognize and understand that vengeance is God's. And he will repay. And he'll make all things right. But for me... I learned that we can live today in light of eternity knowing that, you know what, it's going to be okay because God's going to make everything right one day. And so we don't have to take, you know, vengeance into our own hands. We don't have to seek revenge. We don't have to, as the world says, you know what, well, I'll forgive but I can't forget or one day I'm going to get even with you. We don't have to live like that. Because we know that if there's anything that's done that was wrong, that needs to be made right, God will make it right. And that day will come. And that's between that person and God. And we can live lives of contentment and joy and peace without anger, without bitterness, without hostility without being turned over, as Jesus said, to the tormentors or the torturers because we refuse to forgive. God wants us to forgive. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
And yet at the same time, there's a certain sense of, of justice that will take place. And notice what they were saying. You know, how long or when will you make these things right? You know, when? But before we answer that question, which was also a question that's asked by these slain believers, you know, okay, God, when are you going to make things right? You know, let's take a look at some of the truths that we learn about the intermediate heaven. And I just kind of jotted these down as, as some things that stood out as I was going through these verses. But number one, you, you know, you notice in verse 9, you know, that when these people died on earth, they relocated to heaven. And the reason for it was because they were possessors of eternal life. They were those who had put their faith and trust in God and his word. They had repented. They had put their life on the line. They had laid down their life for their conviction of the fact that what God said is true. And so these folks who had become possessors of eternal life, when they died, they relocated to heaven. And they continued their existence. These people in heaven were the same ones who were killed for Christ while on earth. And it demonstrates there's, there's a direct continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in heaven. You know, the martyr's personal history extends directly back to their lives on earth. And those in the intermediate heaven are not different people. But they are, as Hebrews 12.23 says, they are righteous men who are now made perfect. You know, people in heaven will be remembered for their lives on earth. You know, this, you know, these were known and identified as the ones slain. And the reason they were slain is because of the word of God and because of the testimony. And so it becomes very important how we live our lives here on earth because it will be taken into consideration when we're in heaven. And there is a direct correlation between what we do now and who we will continue to be and what we will do later. And we'll see more of that as we go through it. You know, they, you know, they called out, which means that, you know, they were able to express themselves audibly. And it suggests that maybe they existed in some intermediate form. Uh, you know, there are those who say that, um, you know, between now and the resurrection that we have some type of temporary body. But we know that they were able to express themselves. They were able to call out. They were able to um, uh, somehow express themselves in a way that they were heard, that they can raise their voices. It says how long as they raise their voice or with a loud voice. Uh, we're told that they had a loud voice, meaning that every one of these folks who had a similar or common experience uh, spoke uh, together as a group. You know, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge, you know, the wrongs that were committed to, by, you know, by others upon us? And so, you know, they called out with a loud voice, not loud voices, so they had a common shared perspective. Um, they were fully conscious. They were rational. They were aware of each other. They were aware of God. They were aware of what was going on on earth. And they asked God to intervene on earth and to act on their behalf. You know, those are in heaven. And here's an interesting thing. Those in heaven are, are free to ask God questions, which means that they have an audience with God. You know, and I've often heard people say, but when, we're, when we go to heaven, we'll know everything. And I read this passage and I say, well, you know what? That's not what the word of God teaches. When we go to heaven and we're in the presence of God, we're going to know more than we know now. But apparently, we're not going to know everything. Because God is God and he knows everything. 
And we're going to enjoy spending an eternity in the presence of God, continuing to learn from him things that we don't know. So when, you know, when, when this question is answered, they're going to have a better understanding of what was going on than before they asked the question. But they were able to ask God a question, and they were able to learn. And in heaven, people desire understanding, and they pursue that understanding. People in the intermediate heaven know what's going on on earth. They know that those who, you know, if it's the first half of the, you know, second half of the tribulation, and these are the martyrs who died early in that period of time, they know that those who killed them are still alive. And so they know that they haven't been judged for what they did. So when we look at all of these things, the martyrs clearly remember their lives on earth. They clearly remember that they were murdered. The martyrs in heaven pray for judgment upon those who persecuted them. And those in heaven see God's attributes and they get to understand God's judgment where today it's a little vague or fuzzy for us. But when we're before God and we see that he is holy and that he is perfect and that he is true and that he is righteous, then we will look upon him and his judgments will make a lot more sense than they do now. Because there are those who say, well, how can God send anyone to hell for all of eternity? And it's because we don't understand the severity or the depths of sin. But when we see a holy and perfect and righteous God, and we see the price that he paid so that you and I would not have to spend an eternity in hell, then we'll understand what it means to reject Jesus Christ and his sacrifice then we'll understand the judgment of God. But until then, you know what? We're doing the best we can. You know, we really do. And it gives us some some things to ponder. In the meantime, you know, go back to Revelation 6, look at verse 10, um, where the slain saints ask the question, when, or better yet, how long must we wait? Which leads us to the instruction that they receive in verse 11. Now notice this, they were given, and they were, they were given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So notice it's important that we note it's not whether God will avenge wrong, but when. How long, O Lord, or when will you make all these things right? See, those saints in heaven know that God will eventually judge sin and establish righteousness on earth. And what's fascinating to me is that each one of them are given a white robe. And so there's some conjecture or thought that, well, each one of them are individuals. They're given a white robe. Well, if they're given a white robe, is a white robe symbolic of the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to all who trust in him? Is it an actual physical robe? If it is, then do we have a physical body? Well, somehow or another, John saw these souls in some way that he could identify them. Uh, I'm not dogmatic on that, but it's an argument that maybe we have an intermediate body until we have our resurrected bodies. They were given a white robe. Uh, They were told to rest. And, the, and, and what it means to rest is that there is this period of time where if I would die today and be in the presence of the Lord, then God's saying that, hey, during this interim period of time, there's a time of rest. And not speaking of the physical body that rests, but there's a time where we will rest in the presence of God before the work starts. And that work will begin when Jesus returns to this earth 
establishes his kingdom, and for a thousand years, God's people will rule and reign with him. That's why in the parables, for example, the parable in Luke 19 talks about our faithfulness that we would be given five cities or ten cities or one city, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that you and I are being trained today for the work that God has for us to do when Jesus establishes his kingdom here on earth. And so for those who are in the presence of God today, they are, quote, resting before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. And then their lives, and if God called you or I home today, our life would then begin to become much more active in that we will rule and reign with Christ for those thousand years. So he's saying to them, you know what, rest for a little while longer until the time where the others who are to die are to die and everything will be completed. And what's wonderful to me about that is this, is that the word until or completed means that God's got everything under control. He's saying that, you know what, just rest for a little bit because there are more folks who will die, and this particularly uh, refers to the tribulation period. There are going to be more people who die, more of God's people, who maintain the word of God and the testimony of God, who will be killed or martyred during the tribulation. And until that number is complete, then God's schedule is not fulfilled yet. And so they were basically being told, hey, listen, hey, when are you going to avenge this? Well, everything's under control. It's all, it's all on schedule. You and I just don't know God's schedule. And personally, I don't want to know God's schedule. You know, I, I mean, stop and think about this. Do you really want to know every detail of God's schedule? The only person that God laid out all of human history is in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And John fainted like a dead man when he saw what to expect. I, I don't want to know. I mean, I don't want to know every detail. Do you want to know the day that's appointed for you to die and then comes judgment? Do you, know, want, to, you want to know the circumstances and everything that goes along with that? I don't. I just want to live one day at a time and focus on the fact that this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's be glad in today and trust God that, you know what, everything else is on schedule and I'm okay with that. See, the last instruction about things being completed makes it clear that, you know what? These folks died by divine appointment. Not by any accident. Not by any human being doing something outside of the the scope and the jurisdiction of God. They died by divine appointment. And you know what? So do you and I. God knows every day that we are to live before yet we've lived one. And we die by divine appointment. And we can rest in that. We can have courage in that. We can have comfort in that. The difficulty is knowing the process. And that's been what Linda and I have struggled with, you know, even how to pray about the process. Because we know that I'm not going to live a day longer or die a day sooner than it's appointed for me but I don't know the process. And that's where God takes our hand on a daily basis and he walks us through it.
do we do this treatment or that treatment? Do you do this surgery or that surgery? Do you go see this doctor or that doctor? Do you change this part of your diet or that? Do you take these supplements or those? Do you take these vitamins or that? You know, what do you do? And it's God, you know what? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and above reproach. What additional truths do we learn about life in the intermediate heaven just from verse 11? Notice this. God answers their question, indicating that he communicates with his people. Think about that that you and I will be able to converse with God even as we do today in prayer, but in such a way that he answered their question directly. How much longer? When are you going to do this? Hey, relax. Rest. It's all under control. It demonstrates that we won't know everything. If we did, we wouldn't have any questions. They knew more after God answered their question than before it. And I like the fact that there is a a learning process, even in heaven. You know, God's promise is to fulfill the martyr's request, but he says that they're going to have to wait a little while longer. Now, here's something that will blow most of our, I mean, most of us, this will just kind of, you know, throw us through a loop. Because I hear this on a regular basis, and we hear people say, well, there's no time in heaven. Well, yeah, there is. At least in the intermediate heaven, there's time. In the eternal heaven, the permanent heaven, there won't be any time. But notice they said, when? And he said, until. Meaning what? Meaning that there's still a time frame or there's some sense of time even in the intermediate heaven today. When will this happen? Well, it'll happen when the rest of those who are to die that time is completed. Well, we also know, well, when will Jesus return? Well, he's going to return. How long will he establish his kingdom? For a thousand years. So we know that there is still an element of time in the intermediate heaven because that question is answered right there. They're aware of the, time, of the passing of time. We've waited this long. How much longer do we have to wait? Just a little while longer rest until and so there's time in the intermediate heaven the people of God in heaven have a strong connection with those on earth notice he says your fellow servants and their brethren and there's still a sense of uh, of understanding that you know we're still part of God's family you know our and not only that but you know voice of martyrs estimates that more than 150,000 people die for Christ each year It's an average of 400 per day. And God knows every one of their names and every one of their stories. He knows exactly how many martyrs there will be. And he's prepared to return and set up his kingdom when that final martyr dies. I mean, that's just mind-boggling to me. And these are just observations made from three verses. And I want to share in closing uh, the next few minutes some insights that we gain. And, you know, jot down whatever it is that you want to jot down. But these are just some things that God's put on my heart that I want to share with you, and that's this. Number one, when we die and we go to heaven, the intermediate heaven, we will remember life on earth. We will remember life on earth. And it's obvious from Revelation 6 
these martyrs remembered the details of their death. They remembered their life on earth. Uh, we're told in Luke chapter 16, verse 25, uh, where, the, uh, where Lazarus, the poor man, was comforted in heaven for his experiences on earth. And if you didn't remember your experiences on earth, how can you be comforted for those things that led to your discomfort? And so somehow or another, we're going to be able to compare the things that we suffered on earth to now the comfort we're experiencing in the presence of God, which makes it even more sweeter. And uh, so that's kind of exciting to know that that's the case. After we die, we're going to give an account of our lives on earth down to specific words and details, meaning that somehow or another, and, and this will be really exciting for all of us, that our memories will get better and not worse, which is a really good thing because I'm starting to have like, you know, chemo brain or something. And, and, oh, and for those of you who here last week, let me finish the joke. Uh, the joke goes like this. The, uh, the guy, when the window comes down, the guy's sitting there with the dog, and the dog is a big Rottweiler, and he looks at him and says, oh, and that hearse behind me is my, my wife, and the one behind that is my mother-in-law, and the punchline was, and this dog killed them both, and so there he, then he thought about it, and he asked the guy, can I borrow your dog? And he said, okay, just get in line, and for all of those who gave me a courtesy laugh last time, I just want to... <laughs> Thank you very much. I didn't realize I left, I left, and I went immediately to the stadium to do chapel, and everybody there thought it was really funny, because apparently I must have told that part of the joke um, that I didn't tell to you, and... And it wasn't until 3 o'clock in the afternoon that I was fading on the couch and I saw all my kids in the kitchen and they were all laughing and pointing at me and, and I couldn't figure out exactly what it was they were laughing. It could have been many things, my hair falling out, you know, this thing I'm carrying around. It could be a whole bunch of things they could have been laughing. And then finally they broke down and said, hey, you blew the joke this morning, and, uh, which they were all excited to be able to share with me. And uh, so anyway... But I'm just grateful to know that when we go to heaven, our memories will be better there uh, than they are here. Anyway, uh, the second thing is, we will also realize what is happening on earth. We will realize what's happening on earth. Now, there are those who would say, but how can we enjoy heaven if we realize what is happening on earth? And you know what? It's a matter of perspective. Because when you're in the presence of God... That's what makes heaven, heaven. And, you know, when I hear people say, but we, we, there's no way we can know what's happening on earth and still enjoy heaven. Apparently, that's not true biblically because we can know what's going on on earth and still enjoy the fullness of God. And so somehow it's going to be a matter of perspective. But God knows what's happening on earth. The angels know what's happening on earth. And you know what? It doesn't make heaven any less heaven to any of them. And apparently, these folks that were underneath the altar, that were sacrificed, God's people knew what was going on on earth because they knew that God had yet to avenge the wrongs that they had experienced. And so they knew what was happening. Not only that, but you stop and think about it. Everything, you know, earth is center stage for everything that God is going to do. And so... To not know what's going on on earth, I, I, I'm convinced of this. There are a lot of folks on earth who don't know what's going on in heaven. 
But there's nobody in heaven that doesn't know what's going on on earth. Because earth is center court. Earth is center stage to everything that God has yet to do. Earth is where Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Earth is where, you know, we're told that, you know, that, that, that we're to run this race with endurance that's marked out before us. And there's a word picture in Hebrews 12 of those witnesses who surround us. And there are some who believe that those witnesses are, are watching and encouraging and, 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 and uh, supporting all of us who are running the race that God has set for us to run. And they're encouraging us to do so. And even if that wasn't the case, there's enough other evidence that we know what's going on on earth. And one of the greatest evidences is this. We will rejoice when a sinner repents on earth. And so if we're going to rejoice when a sinner repents on earth, then we've got to know what's going on. We've got to see that. In Luke 15, 7, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And in Luke 15, 10, it says, it goes on to tell us that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now notice it doesn't speak of rejoicing by the angels, but those who are in the presence of the angels. Well, we know that God is in the presence of the angels, but we also know that God's people who are in heaven are in the presence of the angels. And who would appreciate a sinner coming to repentance more than one of God's people? That we would rejoice. And when I read that, I stop and think that if God called me home today, and we could continue to know what was going on on earth because earth is center stage for everything that God is going to do. And we will rejoice in the presence of the angels when we see a sinner turn from sin and turn to Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Can you imagine the joy in heaven? And we will know who really has trusted in Christ. See, in this life, sometimes we're not sure. We hear of a person who prays a prayer, but then we've got to be careful to sit back and watch to see if there's any fruit of a, of a legitimate transformation in their life. We hear of a person who walks down the front, or they pray a prayer, or they sign a card, and yet there's no life change. And so you wonder, well, wait a minute, they prayed the prayer. But see, the prayer isn't what saves us. Jesus saves us. And he saves us based on a broken and contrite heart. And only God knows whether a person is sincerely doing business with God when it comes to seeking, seeking forgiveness and repentance. And we've got to, as human beings, maybe wait to see if there's legitimate fruit or transformation that takes place. And that's a period of time sometimes. There's a process that we have to watch. Because it's easy to say, I pray to receive Christ as my Savior, and to continue to live life as if you don't even know who he is. And that's the most dangerous place to be in the world. For there will be many who say, but we, we did this in your name, and we did that in your name. And Jesus said, but I never knew you. I never knew you. See, are you a possessor of eternal life or are you just a professor 
of one who is born again. And the difference is heaven or hell. See, one last insight, and we'll close on this, and that's the fact that we will continue to relate to fellow believers still on earth while we're in the intermediate heaven. And the one thing I get excited about when I think about this is for all of us who have friends and family who have gone ahead of us and they are now in the presence of God to know that they can still be praying for us in God's presence. Because what's prayer? Prayer is talking to God. And when you read Revelation 6 and they're saying, how much longer, O Lord, do we have to wait for you to avenge the wrongs? You know, there's prayer. There's communication. There's conversation with God. And do you think we're going to spend less time talking to God when we're in his presence or more time talking to God? And what gets me excited is to think about those who have gone on before us that are in the presence of God who talk to God about you and me, who pray for us, those even of our church who have gone home to be with the Lord that are praying for this church and for this ministry in the presence of God as they talk to God and communicate with God. One exciting thing that is to think about the fact that, you know, we'll spend more time talking to God when we're with Him than unfortunately we do today. Even though He wants us to continue to bring our prayers before Him. You know, if people in heaven are allowed to see at least some of what's going on on earth, I can't believe that we would be less compassionate and less caring and less concerned about what's happening just because we're in the presence of God. More so, if anything else. Death is not the end of the road. As I said, it's only a bend in it. And the road that winds, winds only through those paths that Jesus himself has first traveled. The Bible says he came from heaven to earth and he returned back to heaven again. And that's one travel agent that we can follow his lead and his direction because he knows exactly from where he came and to where he is today. See, often we say that Christ will meet us on the other side. And that's certainly true, but misleading because I hope that we never forget that he walks with us on this side of the eternal curtain and that he guides us through the opening when that day comes for us to go into the presence of God. And so not only will we meet him there, but because we have met him here, we are guaranteed that we will see him there. Jesus said, where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is laid out and revealed before us. God, we just pray that we continue to learn how to live this life today in light of the eternity that we have to look forward to. God, we thank you for uh, what we have to look forward to with the uh, temporary or the intermediate heaven. We thank you for those who are in your presence even today who are praying on our behalf. 
we know that our Savior intercedes for us regularly. And we just thank you for, for that. We thank you for hearing our prayers today. God, we thank you that um, because of Jesus, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, that those who have put their faith and trust in him are guaranteed entrance into your presence. We thank you we will continue to learn, that we will continue to have communication and conversation with you, that we will see you face to face, that we will understand better your judgment because we will see your holiness and your righteousness. God, we thank you that we can have peace today knowing that you've got everything under control. Even the number of those who will die professing you, holding fast to your testimony and the word of God, that you know everyone who will die and you know exactly when that day will come, when that will be completed. So God, we know that everything is appointed. We know that you are in control of all things. It should cause us to be at rest even in this life. It should cause us not to be anxious. It should cause us not to be bitter or angry toward those who have harmed us, but to be willing to forgive and to forget, knowing that vengeance is yours and one day you will make everything right. God, I pray for those who are harboring bitterness and anger, that they would just confess that before you even now, and that they would just be willing to trust you in every area of life, and that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we just praise you in his name. Amen.